You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. I'm solo today, it's just me, and I want to talk a little bit about where I'm at hunting season-wise. We've had a bunch of guests on, and I haven't done a solo podcast since the beginning. Don't really have an agenda, but I want to talk a little bit about my hunting season, and I want to be a little more personal. So this time of year, uh, I get a lot of influx of clients. People are contacting me for 2023, 2024. Um, It's a lot of times where I'm building my 2024 clients, so a year out. And I've got a chance to talk to a lot of different people about, you know, where they're at with their season. People may have just recently purchased land. You know, there's, there's a lot going on. And, you know, the market is crazy. You know, I was this summer, uh, I was talking to a few people and we're talking about inflation. Um, I was actually at one of the speaking engagements that I was at, and I, I talked to some of the real estate agents there talking about inflation. You know, land prices going up exponentially. This is an expensive sport. If anybody's trying to get into this sport and think, you know, it's it's going to be something that's going to be easily achievable and there's going to be, you know, not a lot of overhead, that's not true at all. Now, you could make that true. Uh, right now, my uh, partner, Josh Stryker, who's been on this podcast, is out in Missouri doing some uh, DIY hunting uh, on some public out there. And we talked this morning, and he was just telling me, you know, you get the good public land and the bad public land, and it's really hard to find the right locations. And you got to be really on top of, you know, where deer may or may not be. And, you know, you can do it really cheap. I mean, they went down with a trailer, 
and uh, you know, an enclosed trailer, the living out of that for the week or so. And, uh, you know, minimal equipment, you know, Josh hunts with a recurve or 2003 Hoyt. I'm not sure what model is, but I had to fix it the other day. He brought it over to get fixed. Um, you can live the lifestyle of hunting very basically and be very successful if you have good wood, woodsmanship, scouting, etc. But a lot of these clients that I'm interacting with, you know, they're going a totally different path, right? They want to have a piece of property that is optimized. You know, they want every square inch of it optimized for deer or deer hunting or movement. You know, they're really focused on achieving a change or uh, achieving a status. Sometimes it's a status in the neighborhood. I want to shoot the biggest bucks or track the most deer, whatever your goals or objectives are. You know, there, there's something that goes into, you know, your focus there. And, and usually I, I tease that out of my clients through the process. I want to talk a little bit about my hunting season now because, you know, this is where I'm struggling. And uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I've got really two deer that I'm interested in. One deer I think is unkillable. Uh, his movement patterns have been so, uh, they've been defined but the, my ability to get in an area and kill him uh, seems almost impossible. He's, uh, he's located himself in a very dense area of vegetation. It's large. It's probably around 40 or 50 acres surrounded by a larger, you know, conglomerate of wood, woods. But he spent a, a core area. His core area location is, is very hard to access. I made a decision to go after him in an evening I was going to hunt him on the backside. I thought he'd swing out of this bedding area, and I bumped a bunch of does going in there. So obviously my my chances of seeing him were limited, and, and I didn't see him that day. Uh, but I, I plan on going after him a time or two again. I, I've got some more cameras I'm going to try to drop around the peripheral, and this is my strategy. You know, I'm taking the data that I do have, and I'm walking it back. I'm trying to figure out, you know, based on certain wind conditions and his preferences where he's locating himself. Uh, essentially, I'm taking, you know, a, a dot on a map and expanding it and figure out, you know, what his typical movement cycle patterns may be. And I diagnose two areas where I think he's located himself, uh, at least, you know, not specific bedrooms, uh, but a bedding location that he's, he's located himself in. The other piece about this is this property is not necessarily optimized for hunting. There's no trails cut, movements very random. And uh, I'm also dealing with other people hunting the property. So the reason I bring that up is everybody has a, a different situation. You can have highly managed ground like I was talking about earlier. You could be hunting public land. You could be an environment that's really difficult to, to kind of understand and assess. But you got to have a plan. And in this instance, I know how deer move in that area. But I don't know exactly how they enter and exit. There's a lot of randomness. And it makes the hunting more complicated. If you can figure out how to create a bedding area that's very defined, the movement's very uh, mechanical in and out of an area, that makes the hunting 100 times easier. That increases your probability uh, large uh, exponentially. And that's, that's you know, what I do and why I do what I do because I can make the hunting a lot more uh, better defined. And obviously, I'm hunting areas that, that aren't that way, right? I'm just, just the average guy out there hunting. Uh, I don't have uh, unbelievable spots, and I don't have a ton of deer to go after. One of the other things I wanted to identify is what I'm paying attention to data right now. And, you know, like I said, I identified these two deer. Uh, I've got history uh, with both of these deer and um, I'm trying to figure out how they're using the landscape. Now that's really important because, you know, trying to diagnose how a deer uses the landscape, whether it's weather factors that go into it. I talked earlier on the podcast, the last podcast about the importance of wind and how wind changes 
you know, where deer bed or tend to bed. I've seen that quite often. They want to use everything. If it's a very smart deer, it has a, a great awareness and it's very stimulated based on its environment. It's going to pay attention to all the factors that it's going to advantage itself with. Now, obviously the deer are about to get loose here pretty soon and they're just going to go in a breeding cycle. But these deer that are really, really smart, they've got a clue. They're not going to go in areas where they're going to get shot. They're going to focus on their core areas. They're going to breed those does in those areas and they're going to move on. Some deer that are mobile, uh, you know, they're going to move, have these giant jaunts and you're going to get this randomness and movement. When you have a designed property, you know, that property is as good as it lays out. And if you can have a very defined in and out movement into your pro property, you're going to be better off during those conditions. There's a difference between, you know, very defined bedding areas and loose bedding areas. And that might be for a, another podcast on another day. How do you create those? Why you create those in certain locations? How you advantage the deer, et cetera, et cetera. All right, so let's go hunt today. So today, this is my third hunt of the season. And the first two hunts, uh, I think I had a bunch of does. I said the, the one hunt, I busted out some does. Uh, the first hunt, I had a bunch of does around me and... Um, I uh, think a few small bucks, nothing significant, nothing, you know, that I was wanting to shoot or interested in shooting, nothing mature. And then today I went right in a transition area. And let me describe this location. So I had to enter on the edge of my property. This is on my own property. And I went in through a saddle. Uh, I traveled up the saddle into where two saddles converge and they create a mound. And I sat right on top of this mound. So it's a transition area and a cruising area. So deer are going to go from a one bedding location uh, to another bedding location. And I'm sandwiched right in the middle of that location. Now, typically you're going to be off to one side. The other thing I noticed today was the temperature was stagnant. So you don't get thermals in, in weather conditions like that. If the temperature isn't changing, meaning the ground temperature, in this case, the ground temperature was static. Essentially, it was the, uh, it was the same as the ambient temperature. Uh, you didn't really get a, any any thermal advantage or disadvantage at all, which I would which I knew that. So that means I could hunt on either side of the trail. So we were focused on barometric pressure, also focused on what the general wind conditions were, and so that's how I made the decision to locate myself on one side or the other. In fact, this case I sat right in the middle. I sat right in the middle and I got elevated. So I sat in that mound straight in the middle, got elevated, and then I had all these funnels or I guess you could call them saddles in and around me so I could shoot all those saddles and I was in a little bit of a thick cover area actually it's a edge of a bedding area but I wasn't in the primary bedding area and the other primary bedding area had a bunch of does sitting in it I could just make out them you know they were maybe 500 yards away and I could see them moving through and they were st stationed up on this this high point there were does behind me so just like I said I was positioned between two bedding areas and when I, I made some calls this morning um, I didn't call in a doe behind me uh, but she came in randomly and she came right through the trail I expected her and I actually thought about shooting her and I decided to let her go I was just going to observe the stake just to figure out if my plan you know was true now, I believe in this instance, I believe based on the wind conditions, a buck is bedded some distance away from that area, and it's a target deer. Based on the wind, wind conditions today, I believe that deer will transition into that area this afternoon. So my best bet would have stayed and hunted all day, but I had to come back. Uh, I've got some stuff to do today before my afternoon hunt. So that's kind of my story. This is, this is just one day, you know, playing out. 
I left the woods about 11.15. I would have really sat all day in that location because that's a transition area, but but I'm unable to do that today. So you know, you've got to have a plan for every single hunt, and you've got to anticipate what deer are doing. You can't just sit there and allow your cameras to analyze what's going on and then react. Sometimes you have to react yourself, and today was a prime example of me going after these deer. All right. So we're nearing peak breeding season. You know, by the time this comes out, it'll be peak breeding season. And I'm trying to think about what deer are going to do. These next couple weeks are, my opinion, are tough. I think a lot of people put the resources in hunting the rut. And I've said this before, either on this podcast or others. When it comes past October 25th, 26th, I'm worried. I'm not not worried about what's going to happen. I'm just worried that I'm not going to be able to get it done. And getting it done in this case may be, you know, shooting a mature deer. It may be shooting a bunch of does. So here's my next topic. If you're not getting into the deer that you hope for, you need to look at the landscape a little bit different and understand what's important for my deer herd. Now, in my case, my property's become, I don't know, pretty productive. And I'm sucking in a lot of deer from a lot of locations. Now, I'm paying attention to two things. I'm looking at the number of does that are resident on my food plots every night. They're spending a lot of time there. I'm also looking at the number of bucks that are immigrating to my property. It's increasing every day. Uh, A lot of year-and-a-half-year-old bucks, which is good. It just shows that there's a preference for my property. Now, I'm looking at age class, so I'm trying to see how many one-and-a-half, two-and-a-half, three-and-a-half-year-old bucks are on my property, et cetera, et cetera, depending on your circumstance. We don't have a lot of four- or five-year-old deer in my area. But I'm trying to do kick and count. I'm trying to figure out how many deer are in each age class. And I'm also trying to figure out the number of bucks to does in those equations. And I, I try to keep record of that on an annual basis. Now, it changes every year. Last year, we had you know, a lot of hunting pressure. A lot of deer, got, uh, a lot of deer died. Uh, we lost a lot of deer. Uh, car kills. I found random bucks. I mean, we, you know, exhaustion from, from just, just you know, the rut and, and other health-related issues that the deer may have had. You, know, you start to lose a lot of deer throughout the season, and at the end of the season or throughout the winter months, you know your numbers decline, 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 and then obviously we have the uh, the fall and drop stage, and, and the numbers start to rebound. But you're trying to figure out kind of the influx of that bits of information, and that's a good opportunity for you to connect with your neighbors. It may be as simple as walking your neighbor property. It may be uh, as good as having conversations to figure out you know what deer they've seen or what deer that they've notice have made it through the season uh, what they're noticing for numbers some of the areas that i hunt in uh, deer uh, migrate they do not stay in the locations that they uh, do during hunting season they transition to lower ground because of the snow load we've got a lot of snow load in some of the areas that uh, that i work in so paying attention to you know traditional patterns or what deer do that's that's really important so right now it's the numbers game so not having a good deer to go after or having too many does in the landscape, or trying to just assess the numbers. That's what I would do if you're in a quandary. It keeps your mind off trying to kill you know, that one particular deer or those five particular deer, whatever the case may be that you're going after. It's good to be focused on a particular deer, but it's also good to get a macro perspective on your property. I know it's a little random thought, but I think it's important that you know, you're paying attention to the numbers of deer on your landscape. And if you're not doing that, you've got a problem because most of the time people are, at least in the properties that I work in that have high deer numbers, they're neglecting the fact that their habitat's degrading. 
The other piece of this is creating a lot of cover, cover that's valuable, cover that's edible. And we've talked about this in other podcasts. If you do not have edible cover, Woody Browse, as an example, uh, deer foods that are preferential this time of year because they're transitioning. A lot of the green foods have died. Food plots obviously may still be active. They're transitioning to high carb, high fat content foods. Um, but the shrubby component or the woody component, whatever the case may be, if it's degraded on your landscape because of the deer population, your deer will your deer will struggle. And your related health into that winter and fall, and or excuse me, winter and spring months, uh, that's where you start to question your herd health. So I would say pay attention to some of these factors when you're sitting here in the tree stand and say, how much edible food do I have in this small area? You can sit there and kind of do a kick and count, I guess. You can kind of assess the amount of greenery, how many you know briars, there's still going to be greenery and briars, or whatever in your area. In our areas, um, that's probably a predominant food source for the deer at this very time. In fact, they'll pick those food sources over some of your planted food sources. Uh, clover is starting to grade at this time of year because of the uh, the, the colder temperatures. Um, but then your uh, alternative like winter rye and, and wheat, um, those in triticale, those become a very edible food sources and highly nutritious and utilized by the deer. Um, it's thinking about how to integrate, you know, a multitude of, of uh, food assets into your bedding areas in addition to in your food plots. All right, last point, and I'm going to keep this short because uh, I think I'm just kind of dumping information on you guys and I'm just randomly talking about things that are on my mind. It's really important this time of year to think about not only your bedding areas, and I just talked about food, but putting planted food in your bedding areas. So the other thing I want to talk about is, is thinking about food and food in your bedding areas. Many times when we're developing a hunting property, we neglect the fact that we don't have enough food. Food should be dispersed across the landscape. Now, sometimes it's evenly distributed. Sometimes it's unevenly distributed. There's rationale to one versus the other. But let's talk about uneven distribution because on most properties that I work on, that's the case. If we have a bedding area that has dense cover, right, it's, it provides good, I guess, structure. Um, structure could be in vertical or horizontal component. And it has a lot of accessibility, right? This is ideal bedding you know, descriptor to me. And then within that bedding area, there's a planted food source and resident residual plants that the deer can also utilize. But a planted food source within a bedding area is something that I think a lot of people have neglected. Now, what I try to do when I create a bedding area, and this is really important, you're saying to myself, we should be talking about rot and deer movement. Well, this keeps deer on your property, and this would emphasize or improve the huntability during the rut. Food within bedding areas is critical. Planted foods even better. So when I'm setting up a property, I identify a average to higher quality food within a bedding area. Typically a monoculture plant. Sometimes it's a multitude, but usually it's a monoculture. A lot of times it's winter rye. That's one of the easiest options. It grows really, really well. Now, in and around this food plot or food source that I plant in the center of a bedding area, or maybe on the edge of a bedding area for that matter, to help direct movement, I need to identify and reduce the volume of canopy. One, sunlight. Two, because the trees produce a large volume of leaves, you're going to get a lot of food suppression. People don't pay attention to this, and this is very basic but very prominent across the landscape. I'll see these little micro food plots in the woods, and they're so proud they clear out an area, and it's like it's too small. Why? Because it's going to get suffocated. 
The canopy, when those leaves drop, it's going to suffocate that food plot. It's not valuable. So the spaces that you think you need to create for food sources that are planted, they need to be larger. Or maybe those trees that are cut are either replaced by shrubbery. So it's reducing the edge, it's creating an edge effect and it's reducing the height of those, those particular plants. So your vertical structure comes down, okay? And that provides more cover for deer in concert, re- reducing the leaf load. Leaf load on your food plots. It's something that very few people consider and it's a huge tidbit. And we talked about this with Jake Ellinger on another podcast because him and I think very similar in a lot of ways. Setting up a hunting property, one of the best things you can do is put this plant of food within these bedding areas. And the reason why is those doe groups tend to get dispersed quite a bit during the chasing phase. And if you're able to put food in those areas, they don't move as often. In fact, they'll circle back around in those bedding areas and they'll spend more time in them. They also get bred more in the bedding areas instead of raining locations. Now, this is a bit anecdotal, but I've seen this time and time again on the landscape. You would think that deer would be destined to, uh, to co-locate themselves near big food plots all the time. During the rut phase, initially that may be the case, but that starts to decline. Their movements are much more unpredictable. Food in bedding areas increases not only predictability, but interest in those areas because they have the cover component. Escape cover is just as important for purposes of separating them from the hunter, separating the does from the bucks. That is a big part of it. It also gives them the chance to escape, obviously, the chasing component where the bucks are chasing the does. We don't think about these things in enough detail. Creating this bedding area and put it in, in chunks and blocks and segregating it and creating irregularity in the edge, and we've talked about that. In fact, I just did a podcast on that, um, is really, really critical. Not only for food, but creating segregation and separating the bedding area into multiple sectors. Think of it like an apartment complex and you have multiple floors or multiple rooms within uh, a particular floor. It gives them variability, and that's really, really important. All right, I'm going to end there. I think that's really uh, something uh, that we should consider when we're doing our design layout. And I think it's funny. We're talking about design layout, and we're talking about rut in the same moment. Um, There should be some more information I'll I'll probably provide over the next coming weeks of what's to come. I'm going to get some of our regulars back on. I'll probably do a few more solo podcasts so you can see where I'm at. But I kind of wanted to share you know, my current status, where I'm at, I haven't harvested a deer. I'm okay if I don't harvest a mature buck this year. I'm, I'm not that worried. Um, I'm thinking about next year, I'm thinking about some of these deer and, and getting myself in a better place to kill some of those deer should they survive the, the hunting season. And realistically, and I said this with the last podcast with Steve, is, you know, I'm doing this for the meat to feed my family. That's that's number one. And a trophy on top of that is the icing on the cake. I've been very blessed over the years I usually kill one buck a year. And if this year that doesn't happen, I'm, I'm not so upset about that at all. And I think it's okay walking into season and having those feelings. Not having a lot of target deer to go after uh, is it is what it is. Um, and, and it doesn't dissuade me whatsoever. I feel blessed to own my own land, and, and hopefully you do as well if you do. And I feel p- blessed to be able to work on it and enhance it and promote that deer interest. That's one of my ultimate goals. And Obviously, increasing age structure is another goal, but you're susceptible to, you know, what's what's happening in your area. So, all right, I'm going to end there. I hope everybody's rut hunting is going well. We'll check in with you next week, and thanks for following Whitetail Landscapes. See ya.
Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.